you're in here right now uh, and you're freezing cold, it's because last week I tried to wear a jacket up here and I sweat right out the back of it. So I made sure that things were extra cold in here so that wouldn't happen again. So sorry about that. Uh, my name's John. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I'm so glad to be here with all of y'all. We're in the third week of a series that we started three weeks ago called uh, Pray. And the reason why we named it Pray is so that nobody would be confused as to what the application for this uh, time was. We really want us as a church to pray this. There's three goals that we had. One, that uh, you as a Christian or somebody that wants to know God would pray more. Two, that our church as a whole would be full of more prayer. Um, And three, that we would have more meaningful prayers. So uh, those are our goals. We're in our third week and we continue to pray that God will do his work. Join with me as I pray and uh, we'll start with our time in the word. Let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, you're good to us, uh, not because we deserve your goodness, but because uh, goodness is an attribute that comes from you, Father. You can't help but to be good, uh, even to people that don't deserve it at all. So, Lord, I pray uh, that regardless of what life throws our way, that we would never be those tempted to question your goodness and your glory. I pray that you would help us to trust you, Father, even when um, life is incredibly hard. Would you remind us of this great gift that we have of prayer, Father? Uh, Would your word show uh, just what it is and how we can take advantage of it? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, A few years ago, I started to use a program called Evernote, um, and I used it to capture all these great quotes that I heard uh, in life, just so that I have a place to store uh, just some of the greatest quotes from the greatest philosophers uh, of not just our day and age, but all time. And so I want to start off and share one of those great quotes with you. Um, And it goes like this. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Mike Tyson said this um, as he was getting ready to go into a fight and they started to talk to him about his opponent and the plan and how the guy that he was going to fight was going to move side to side and hit him and counter and all of these things. And he just said, uh, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Uh, and his point was, plans are good uh, until you get a fist Uh, in your two front teeth, and then you start to find out that regardless of how good or how tight your plan was, uh, things change. You find that you don't have the strength to deal with what you thought that you could um, at one time. And I don't know of any other quote that describes life as good as this. Uh, And here's what I mean. What I mean is that in all of our lives, every one of us are going to get punched in the face. Uh, And whatever, well, you may not actually get punched in the face, a metaphorical punch in the face. Um, And every one of us finds that whatever plans we had, however strong 
we thought that we were, uh, things change. Um, one of the things that we found in the course of the you know, 27 months that we've been here as a church is that suffering hasn't been far from us as a church. Uh, from people that have lost brothers to parents to grandmothers, all of the above. Um, and I think that when you lose something, when life hits you really, really hard, uh, there's two things that are real surprising to you. One is just how much that hurt. And two, um, how weak your faith was to respond to that hurt. C.S. Lewis talks about uh, when he lost his wife, what he said, the thing that surprised me the most was that I found out the temple of my faith was nothing more than a house of cards. Don't you and I feel the same way? And what we quickly find out um, is that regardless of how you responded to it in the past, hurt like that, um, it's in all of our futures. We've said it time and again here, some of us will have to deal with the idols and struggling with God through the idols of prosperity that come our way. All of us will have to deal with struggling to maintaining faithfulness to God uh, when the hard times come our way. And what we quickly find out is that none of us are as prepared as we thought. None of us are prepared for, for homelessness, uh, for the loss of a job or the loss of a parent, or death, a chronic illness or rejection, a family drama. When the tidal waves like that come, none of us are Olympic swimmers. Everybody's just barely trying to stay afloat. And the question is, how will you respond when you face those hard times? Uh, for those of us that are Christian in here, there's an added bonus, right? Um, as a pastor, one thing that I've learned or that I feel deeply uh, is that one call, one phone call can change your entire life. Everybody knows it in theory, but everybody doesn't get those calls often. So it just kind of stays in the back of your head. As a pastor, uh, we get those calls often because when people get those calls, they call us and it's very, very real. One call can change your life. Thursday morning, we went for a meeting, and we found out that a good friend of ours lost his father. His mom walked into the room one night, and he was just in the bed, gone. Life in a fallen world is full of hard times, one. But here's where, as Christians, things change for us. Uh, when you try to maintain faithfulness to God in this world, you set yourself up for hard times that the rest of the world doesn't. Faithfulness to God often means that while the rest of your friends are enjoying uh, dating and marriage and companionship to any and everybody, as a result of being faithful, what that means is that some of us will have to remain single. While everybody else is enjoying advancement in their career because they're willing to compromise 
as a result of being faithful to the standards of God, there's some of us that aren't going to get those same things. While the rest of the world is enjoying, indulging in substances and freeing themselves of their problems, as a result of being Christians, some of us are going to have to uh, not be able to do those things and just forget about our problems. We'll have to sit with them a little longer. There's a suffering that comes in trying to maintain faithfulness to God. Obedience is costly. And so the question is, how do you and I remain faithful? How do we strengthen our hands when it seems like obedience to God may serve as our death sentence? I think we, we get a model from the life of Jesus in Mark chapter 14. So if you would turn with me there to Mark chapter 14. And as you uh, turn there, I just want to read you a quote by uh, a pastor who says this. The son of man didn't suffer so that you and I wouldn't have to. He suffered so that we would know our suffering would be like his. Mark chapter 14 we find Jesus at the end of his life staring death in the eyes in the garden of Gethsemane. And he brings a group there, and what he does is he prays. Uh, We're going to spend our time on this prayer because in the course of the past three weeks, here's where we've gone. The, The first week we talked about life in a fallen world is hard. And what prayer is, is it's God's prescription for you and I to deal with our concerns in this world that we're in. What prayer is, is it's it's you and I calling on God to fulfill the promises that he's made to make things right. And the good news is that when you and I pray, we're only asking God to do what he said that he would do. So we don't have to coerce him and twist his arm. We merely twist the key that he left underneath the mat for us. That's the good news in prayer. Last week, what we did was we got a pattern. Jesus is teaching the disciples in a classroom of sorts, what it is to pray. They say, teach us how to pray. And what he does is he gives them a model. Here's what you do. When you pray, prayer starts with desiring God's glory, and then it moves on to a daily dependence on God's goods. And what we're getting ready to see now is Jesus not teaching them concepts in a classroom, But what we see is him putting these concepts to the test in the midst of crisis. I want to set a little bit of context for us as we get ready to dive in. The garden is the divine mudroom of sorts. What a mudroom is, is um, say you live in a town where it's really cold and really brisk outside, then there's this room that you have where on your way into the brisk cold, You gear up and get ready uh, for what is a terrible place to be. Jesus does this. In this garden, he's gearing up, getting ready to go and face the brisk, the brisk cold. Sandwiched in between the last supper and the betrayal. Here's what takes place at the last supper. Jesus tells the 12 that are with him, hey, I'm getting ready to go and suffer and die. And every one of y'all are going to scatter and leave from me. 
But what he says to them in this time is, but don't worry, I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm not going to bring it back up, right? Like, man, yo, I was by myself getting washed and y'all just let me. Like, he said, no, 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 no. I know that you're going to fail beforehand, but I want you to know that I know that and I plan to restore you. Isn't that so gracious that we serve a God that knows our failings beforehand, tells us that we'll fail, but then tells us I'm not going to hold it against you. Jesus doesn't tell them that they'll fail to make them feel low and to hate themselves, but to really show the depths of his love. And and that you and I can be free to be honest with who we are and our failings and our shortcomings because we have a God that knows our failures, even the future ones that you don't know about yet, but he has a commitment to stay close to us. And what he does is he brings them along. I'm going to read the story and then we're going to dive in. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 32, it says this. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. He went a little farther, fell to the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, you sleep? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And again, he came and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. They didn't know what to say to him. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody and they catch you sleeping and you wake up real quick and you don't know what to say? I think that's what they feel right here. Then he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See. My betrayer is here. Here's the main point that I'm going to make. When we talk about how do we remain faithful, um, when it's clear that we will get punched in the face, where do we get the strength in our hands to fight this battle? And I think that what we see here in this text is this, that we strengthen our hands by surrendering our hearts. We strengthen our hands by surrendering our hearts. I'm, I'm going to show you how I get there, how we get here from this text Uh, The best way that I can think to outline this, if you're trying to take notes, and there's three little sub-points. The very first one is this, primer, right? Here's what he does. This story starts off with preparation, Jesus priming us, right? The same way that you would if you buy a new house and you come in. My wife and I bought a house here a few years ago, and we came in, and there were um, all these walls in our house that were all terrible wall colors to be in a house, like bright yellow and pink and green, just all these terrible colors. And so what we did was no shade to anybody whose house is those ways. So what we did was we came in and what we did was we put primer on all of the walls. We just, 
our goal was to come in and say, hey, we hate all of the colors equally, so we're just going to prime it and spend time and make sure that they're all this like white just to put it all in, in, in the same place. So once they're in the same place, um, then as we put the paint on, the paint will stick. Um, and what you find out is that if you don't take time and prime your walls right, then the paint's not going to come out like you want it. So we are going to spend a bit of time in the preparation, and it's only so that when we get to the main point, this sticks. Start with me in verse 32. It, it says this. He, he, he talks about a place. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane. Uh, that word literally means the place where olives are pressed into oil, right? So back in this time, oil was used uh, to anoint priests, to anoint kings. It was something special used to talk about where God's presence was, where folks hoped that it would uh, dwell. And Jesus, on the way to the cross, leads them to this place that literally means the place where it's pressed. He leads them into a garden where he's getting ready to be pressed so hard that he sweats drops of blood, and this is the place that he's in. He goes there knowing that this will be an intense time, and what you and I can see or take from this is that every time God leads us into a place of pressure and testing, it's not a bad thing if something beneficial comes out of it. Jesus brings them into this place. 32, it goes on and says this, and he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. Look here at this next verse. He took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. And he said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. Why does it tell us that he takes them all? And, and then it says that he takes these three and he takes them further. Here's why I think that it tells us this. Um, at the last supper, when Jesus says, all of y'all are going to turn your backs on me, uh, but it's fine. I know your weakness, and I'm going to come back and restore you. What does Peter say? Not me. I'm going to be with you until I die. The rest of them may leave, but I'm going to be with you. James and John in Mark 10, as Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem to his death, James and John pull him aside and say, Jesus, when you get ready to go into your kingdom, is it okay if, if me and James ride shotgun? Um, and Christ says, y'all don't know what you ask. Are y'all ready to drink the same cup? And they're like, yeah, we'll drink it, pass it. And Jesus says, Jesus says, Jesus says, y'all aren't ready. So when here's what they, they, they do. They think that there's something inside of them that sets them apart from the rest of the disciples. And Jesus is trying to prime them and let them know, no, no, no. We're all on the same playing field. My uh, nephew Jackson, when he was, uh, well, he's still two, but when our daughter came home from the hospital, uh, he did something that was it kind of cute but mainly condescending. Uh, my, my daughter came in, and he, at two years old, uh, started to talk in baby talk towards her. 
Um, and I say it's condescending because I had to pull him aside and I said, Jackson, you're a baby. All of your talk is baby talk, right? You're trying to put yourself in a place that you're not. Diapers like you still wear, y'all are basically the same, but you have words. And what I had to do was I had to take him, I had to put him in his place. What Jesus does is he takes Peter, James, and John, the people that were strong, that tried to talk to the rest of them in baby talk, and he says, Y'all, y'all, come a little closer. Here's what I love about this, though. As Jesus is on his way to his death, he never wastes an opportunity for training. Pouring and investing our lives into people happens as much in the midst of crisis as it does in a classroom. Some of the best things that you can do is bring folks along with you as you go. And not just, uh, it's not just that he wastes a, a time to train, uh, but one thing that he does is here. Jesus, God in the flesh, who has this perfect, unbroken relationship with God, chooses not to do life on this earth alone or by himself. Jesus knows better than all of us that our lives were never meant to be lived alone. We were never meant to even face the hardest things by ourselves, and he's a model of this. But I don't just want to talk about the, the place and the partners that he brought, brought along with him. I want to talk about Jesus' posture. Look here at verse 33. He took Peter, James, and John with him. Look, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Mark goes to great lengths to tell us how we felt on the inside, but he also goes to great lengths to tell us that Jesus actually communicated what he felt on, on the inside. He didn't try to act like it was all good, but he says here in verse 34, he said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here with me and stay away." When Jesus says, I'm deeply grieved to the point of death, he doesn't say it the way that you and I do. Like, I'm so hungry, I think I'm going to die, right? It's not a hyperbole. It's him saying, no, the stress is so much on me that it literally feels like I'm going to die just at the thought of this stress. What Jesus is preparing to do is not just stand in front of God to deal with his own sins, which if you and I did that and stood in front of God to deal with our own sins, it would be enough to crush us. Jesus didn't have any sins, but what he's getting ready to do is stand in front of God and answer for all of our sins. And not just ours in this room, but for every sin that was ever done in the world that God, who is gracious and forgiving, but is just and never let sin go unpunished. For every sin that's done, it's just been stored up, stored up in this cup, stored up. And that's what he means by this cup of God's wrath. And as Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, the cross is not a sucker punch, something that he doesn't see coming. He knows exactly the agony and the torture that he's getting ready to get into for me and for you. 
And he's getting ready to drink this cup of God's wrath for us. I want you to know this is the good news of the gospel. This is why we celebrate week in and week out because what Jesus set out to do here, he actually did. And what that means is that you don't have to pay for your sins. You don't have to pay for one of them. What Jesus is intending to do is to drink God's, the, the cup of God's wrath so that nobody would have to. And he's saying even the prospect of that is enough to, to drive me to the point of death. And he doesn't just keep that on the inside. He shares it with those that come with him. He pulls the people that has said they were the strongest And what he gives them at this time is not primarily a wisdom nugget, but he shares his weakness. Listen, y'all, for every one of y'all that wants to help people learn to depend on Jesus, people are often impacted most, not by the wisdom that you throw at them, but by the weakness that you bring them into. This is what Jesus does here. And he primes these strong men to get on their knees and to pray like he does. Are you feeling weak here today? Are you feeling like your faithfulness to God and your commitment to do what he's called you to do will be your death sentence? If you're feeling that way, I want you to know you're in good company. Jesus brings the strongest And he tells them, look, this is a weight that I have to bear. He's not carrying, he's not asking them to carry their weight. He's just asking them to be with him. One more thing. Sometimes it's easy for you and I to think we're all alone in the trials because we find ourselves in a place where nobody gets the unique burdens that we have to carry. And I want you to know that just because somebody doesn't get the unique burdens, the nuances of what you go through, it doesn't mean that they can't be of any help to you. Jesus brings a group of guys and says, yo, I just need you to be with me. Sometimes our presence with folks in the midst of hard on this times are what they really need the most. That's the primer. Jesus is just saying, hey, you're not as strong as you think that you are. And he knows that you're not as strong as you think that you are. And for everyone that would admit that I'm not as strong as I think that I am, there's amazing power available to you. We strengthen our hands, not by the resolve that we have, but by surrendering our hearts. Look here at verse 35 to 40, and this is the the prayer. He went a little farther, fell to the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour, stay awake and pray, so that you won't enter into temptation? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
once again he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And again he came and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. They did not know what to say to him. On the eve of what's going to be the toughest night of Jesus' life, the greatest crisis that he's, he's going to face here on earth, what he does is he shows the disciples that what he taught them about prayer in the classroom was not just a concept that when he got punched in the mouth, it all went out. But what he's saying is, no, 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 listen, the way that I'm going to strengthen my hands to do what God has actually called me to do is to spend time praying. Look at what he prays. Look at how he starts off, verse 36. In getting ready to face and to drink the, the, the cup of God's wrath, um, he doesn't see God as an enemy to his joy. He doesn't distance himself from God, but as he prays, he uses this word Abba, this intimate connection with God, and I believe he's reminding himself as well as reminding God, you're my father. I wonder when things are the most intense in our own lives, how easy it is to distance ourselves from God and not pray at all. Or when we do pray to utter off these formalities that show we really don't believe that God is a caring father. Jesus starts off in the words that he told them about how to pray. He puts this to the test. He knows that he has a father, which means that in the time of his distress, God hears him. God hears our prayers clearly when we're at our wit's end. Abba, Father. And then we see this thing break into two parts. His help and his hope. Or his confidence in the ability of God as well as his contentment in the activity of God. And it says this, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Listen, Jesus is praying and this is where prayer starts. Prayer has to start with a belief that God can do the impossible. So as Jesus starts and prays, he's praying that God would actually, that there would be some way that he, that mankind could be forgiven, but that he won't have to go through it. Listen, there are boundaries that all of us have when it, when it comes to the things that you and I think that God can do. And as God does those things, what takes place in the minds of humanity is that those boundaries grow, right? So the first time that folks saw water turn into wine, they're like, man, Jesus can make water turn into wine. The first time that they saw a blind man see, they thought, wow, God can give the blind sight. The first time that they saw the like storms calm, they're like, wow, Jesus speaks in all these storms, and everything that he does, people are surprised. But Jesus, being God himself, doesn't have those same boundaries. He knows that everything is possible with God. He knows that there's nothing impossible with him. Um, I've started reading uh, the 
Sherlock Holmes novels, um, and it's been yeah, just real fun and real good. And uh, one thing that really struck a chord with me is that Sherlock Holmes has an assistant named John Watson, and uh, uh, he's become so accustomed to being with Sherlock Holmes and seeing the great things that he could do that everybody else gets shocked. But there's this this one place in a book where uh, John Watson says this. He said, I had become so accustomed to his constant success that the very possibility of him failing never came into my mind. And what he said was, the only people that doubted Sherlock Holmes were the people that hadn't seen him work. And what he says, what I saw him work, so that every time I came across something, I always knew that if, if it seemed like there was no way, he could make a way. This is where prayer starts. Jesus, who has no boundaries on what God can do, is praying, God, if there's any other way, you can do the impossible. If there's anything, Lord, let there be another way. I think sometimes our prayers are hampered because uh, you and I don't think that God can do the impossible uh, because we've ignored the track record of how he's worked. But although prayer starts here, that God can do the impossible, Peace is never found here. And here's what I mean by that. The prayer doesn't stop there. If you stop just with God can do the impossible and I know that he can and we continue and pray and ask him to do those things, when he doesn't, if he doesn't, then you have no peace. That what you've done is you've held God hostage to an outcome that he's never promised. And what that is, is it's like waiting for a bus in the rain that was never scheduled to come and being mad because it didn't come. So prayer does start with a belief that God can do the impossible. That's where prayer is found, but here's where peace is found. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Peace is found in the fact that when we pray, we're praying to a father. We're praying to somebody that actually cares about our eternal joy, even if temporarily it seems like he's willing to sacrifice our temporary happiness. So he says, God, I know that you can do it all. But even if you don't, even if my obedience to you is my death sentence, I'm willing to follow your will. Look at 39. Here's one thing that I want to bring out that I think we miss when we read this story. 39, he, it says this. Once again, he went away and prayed. Listen, saying the exact same thing. 41 says this. Then he came a third time and said 
to them. Jesus seems to come back, and, and, and it seems as if this has been a literal hour. So what this is not, this is not Jesus going into the garden in agony, praying these 23 words, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. It's not like he prays those 23 words and gets up and says, all right, I'm ready to go. It says for the course of an hour, it seems like he's wrestling with God in prayer. He's persistent. That constantly praying to God the same prayers about the same things is not a lack of faith. It's the presence of faith. If you really lacked faith, then you would stop asking. But the fact that he thinks that God can actually do something, if not about his situation, but about his joy and the strength and the resolve to do what God has called him to do, he sits down and he prays. He repeats this request. And you and I give up too easily in prayer. You and I think that it's a failure of faith if we pray the first time and we don't have the heart for God that we want. I think what Jesus shows him, what shows us, is that surrendering our hearts to God's will, although it can happen in an instant, it's not an easy task. It is a wrestle. And so if you feel like I've been praying that God would remove this desire from me, from my own self-will, I've been praying that God would just line me up with his heart. I've been praying that God would give me the strength and it hasn't worked. I want you to take a step back and to say, maybe it hasn't worked yet. If you're praying and you feel like it's slow, Keep praying. God invites us to continually ask him, to plead to him. Look at verse 37. He says, then he came and he found them sleeping and he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Listen to what he says here. Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. When he says don't enter into temptation, I don't think that he means stay awake, watch and pray so that you won't be tempted. I think he's saying, no, stay awake and pray so that when temptation comes, it doesn't win out. When the temptation to turn and to run from God's plan comes, that your hands are strengthened because your heart is surrendered. The flesh is weak. The resolve that you and I have to obey God better in the future than we did in the past is worthless. The resolve that we have doesn't change anything. It's the Spirit's work inside of our hearts. And it happens that way through prayer, through pleading with God, through laying down our will on the altar of what God wants to do. I think when it comes to doing God's will, some of us are too ambitious 
and what we think we can do by the strength of our hands? So we dive headfirst and proclaim God's faithfulness to him about what we're going to do from this point forward or to other people about all the great things that we're going to do for God. But that's not the model that we get here in the text. The model that we get here is even if we're bringing anybody else with us, is that we bring them with us, share our weakness, and surrender our hearts and pray that God would use that to strengthen our hands. For those of us that haven't yet surrendered our will to God or find ourselves in a place where we're afraid of saying, Lord, whatever comes my way, I'll do that. Don't be surprised when temptation comes if you don't feel like you have the strength to endure. But for those of us that have and constantly each morning, for those of us that get up and are reminded that every moment that I'm faithful to God is because of the work that Jesus has done inside of me. For those of us that are reminded of that truth, and we pray, and we don't rest on a prayer that we said when we were five to carry us through, but every morning we get up and we plead this same thing for God, Jesus, right? I want you not just to be my Savior, But my Lord, I want you to help me to submit to God's will. I want you to help me want this, even though I don't want it right now. The prayer of praying, God, let your will be done, is acknowledging, God, I don't don't want it, but I want it. Sometimes the presence of temptation can discourage us or make us feel like, I thought I was past that. Why does it keep on coming? But the goal is not that we get past it. It's that when it comes, we are alerted to, as long as we live, there's going to be that thing inside of us that doesn't want what God wants. But as long as we have breath, we get up and we cry out that God would change us, that God would help us to want what he wants. I want you to know that you're free to cast your cares on the Lord. As we read in Isaiah, he never sleeps, he never slumbers. There is never a time where he is disinterested in what we have to say to him, especially as it relates to wanting him to give us the strength to to do his will. And I do want you to know that prayer is tough work. It's hard to do it by yourself. Bring somebody else along. Jesus primes them, he brings them and helps them know, hey, you're not as strong as you think that you are. And then he prays and he pleads for God's help. But he puts his hope in the fact that God will do what's best. Look how this story ends. Jesus comes into the garden pressed down. But look at how he leaves. Look at the power that he has. Verse 41. Then he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. See, the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. One of the hard things about prayer, um, maybe not for you, but for me, um, is that God doesn't speak audibly to me. 
So sometimes it's hard to know if my prayers have been answered. And so sometimes, you know, I, you know, I try to look for a sign, I look for an impression. And um, What Jesus does here uh, is I think he helps us to see um, sometimes impressions that we have in our heart uh, can be misleading. But do you know what's not misleading? The providence of God what God actually does. And so what he says is, God, I pray if there's any other way, but not my will, but yours be done. God, if there's any other way, not my will, but yours be done. I trust you. I'm willing to walk into death. God, if there's any other way, not my will, but yours be done. Y'all are asleep. There's an angry mob that's getting ready to head my way. I guess God said no. He got an answer to his prayer. It wasn't what he asked for, but he doesn't run from it. He runs towards it because he knows that the safest place is in God's will, in God's hands, even if God's will means my death. And not just does he run toward it? But you look at all the rest of the gospel accounts of what takes place after this prayer. And what you see is Jesus getting unjustly smacked in the face and he doesn't trip. What you see is him getting a crown of thorns put on his head. And what what the authors don't paint a picture of is of him fighting to take it off. What you get is him being flogged in the back, not for anything he did, but for what we did, and taking it. What you get is him bruised and bloodied on his way to the cross. But it seems as if he has enough composure after being beaten all night, after being taunted, after being flogged in his back, after having a crown of thorns put on his head. He has enough composure to look at his mom crying and John there and says, hey, John, you take care of my mom. Mom, John's going to take care of you. He gets put on the cross. Instead of using his last breaths to gasp for air, he's giving assurance to a repentant sinner on one side that he'll be with him in paradise. And then the people that are spitting at him, he's praying for God to forgive them. And what we get is this picture of somebody that agonized in prayer, surrendering his heart and making a decision to do God's will. And you get somebody powerfully doing God's will, even to the point of death. And I think what we see here is that we strengthen our hands by surrendering our hearts. Jesus gave his will to a loving father. And what he quickly find out, or what we see, is that Jesus had a unique suffering on the, the, the cross. So in many ways, this is a model for us to follow. But in a unique way, this is a picture that you and I couldn't follow. That Jesus wrestled with God like this. And what he did was he bore all of our sins. 
So what that means is that every wrong deed that we've done, that you're actively trying to pay for now, everything that you're trying to do to balance the scales of the good and the bad in your life, you, you, you don't have to do that. Because Jesus died for our sin. Every relationship that you find yourself in, trying to work hard to, to get this sense of love and to prove that you're worthy for somebody's affection to rest on you, you don't have to do that. Because Jesus purchased that for you on the cross, free of charge for all that would surrender our will in the same way that he did in saying, Lord, there's, God, there's things that I want. There's things that I know that you, you, you can do. However, the life that I live, I don't want to live it for myself. I want to live it for you. Jesus suffered for us, yes. But he does in this text give us an example to follow and So as we close, I just want to end here with a few thoughts uh, for you. In the rest of this story and in Acts, uh, we see a few things. One, this story is as much about Jesus praying as it is the disciples' prayerlessness. This story is sandwiched in between promising aspirations of what folks said that they would do for him. It's sandwiched in between Peter saying, I'll die for you, and actually having a chance to die for him. But like a vegan sandwich, it's surrounded by promise with nothing but disappointment (laughs) in the middle. And what I want us to see is this. Look, if there really is a God that's in control, that has the power to strengthen our hearts, it helps us to diagnose the problems when we fail and to know that there are no isolated instances. Jesus' faithfulness to do God's task is as much tied to the help that he got through prayer as the disciples' faithlessness to do God's task was tied to their prayerlessness. You go to the book of Acts, less than 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead, and they saw, yo, Jesus did what God called him to do. It served as a death sentence for him, but death was not the end of his story. In Acts 4, you have Peter and John being unjustly beaten and thrown in jail. The spirit breaks them out of jail. They come back, and what they do is they have a prayer meeting with their church, and they pray that God would give them boldness. And then in Acts 5, they're taken back and they're beaten again, and at the end of Acts 5, they leave rejoicing. What was the difference? The difference was they tapped into the power of God to strengthen their hands by surrendering their hearts and being willing to go forward to be faithful to God, even if it meant their death, of which it did for all of them. 
And so I want us to know as a church that this is our heritage. This, this is what strengthens us. This is the only place that, re, that resolve and strength and faithfulness comes from. It doesn't happen apart from the Spirit of God at work in our hearts, and that work is activated by prayer, of which God has promised to give us those things that he tells us to call for. So three things as we end. One, that we as a church would pray together, and here's what I mean by by that. Um, That as we come in week after week and dedicate time, even in our corporate gathering to pray, that you would work hard, that you would prepare your hearts before you even come here and pray that God would give you the mental focus not to fall asleep, not to daydream while we pray, but to be reminded that when we're praying, we're actually doing something. And we lock and we pray right alongside. And one of the things that we would do is that we would pray together by this. Make it your aim and your ambition to never miss a prayer meeting. Since August of 2014, when we first had the idea and the dream to start this church, once per month we have gathered as a church to pray, not because, of, not because it's a formality, but because it's something that we feel like actually does something. This Wednesday night... 7 p.m., the first Wednesday of each month, we gather here as a church to eat and to pray because we feel like our hands are strengthened for the task by the way that we surrender our hearts and we have the chance to do it together. And I would ask, never miss a prayer. As much as it is in your power when Christians are gathering to pray and you have the chance, don't take it for granted. When I say pray together, I mean never miss the opportunity to begin an impromptu prayer meeting on your own. If you have burdens and you have brothers and sisters, then you have all the ingredients that you need to stop and pray. Two, pray boldly, but remember who it is that you're praying to. Pray and be reminded that God can do the impossible. And let's pray to that end. Let's be reminded on the back end, if he doesn't do the impossible for us, it's no indication, or it's not necessarily an indication of his love and commitment for us. There may be a bigger plan. And lastly, never get the order confused. You and I need to do the hard soul work before we're resolved to work with our hands. Don't start one without the other. And when you find yourself weak, the answer is not to have more resolve, to hype yourself up. The answer is bring other people into your weakness and pray that God would give you the strength to do what he's called you to do. Um, Mike Tyson says that everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Um, What Jesus gives us here is uh, the plan that we have is actually anticipating the punch in the mouth. And we pray beforehand um, so that when we do get punched in the mouth, God would give us the grace to execute the plan that he laid out for us. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful 
for your word and the fact that, um, Lord, that the answer to a lot of our worry and concern is simultaneously so simple and hard, God. Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember the blessings that come from acknowledging our weakness and crying out to you for help. Father, I pray that you would help each of us to pray more, to be reminded that you have big enough hands that you can carry all of our small concerns. Father, I pray that our church would be a place full of more prayer, that we would see that as a first option and not a last resort. Um, Father, and as we pray, um, I pray that you would Give us the words to say and where we don't have the words to say. I pray that we would trust in your spirit who has the perfect words for our perfect situations. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.